We've been talking about, we started off this year, if I could just do five minutes recap, I did 45 minutes worth of recap last week, and so that's probably not real great if you use up all your time recapping, but I want to bring you all up to where we are, if you haven't been here for a while. Um, we ta- started off talking this year about the blessing of Abraham, and that we were going to be able to tap into this astounding blessing, where you will be blessed going in and blessed going out, blessed in your bank account, blessed in your storehouse, blessed in your family, blessed to the fruit, blessed here and there, and your enemies, they'll come at you one way, and they'll flee from you seven ways, that, you know, you'll be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, you know, people will be jealous of the amazing life that you have, and everybody kind of thinks, oh, wow, that's like so stinking far away from where I am right now, can't possibly be possible. And so we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this year dealing with that very mental process of how do we stop that process? Because we're kind of saying, yeah, God, you said, but. How many of you know there's no, God, you said, but. There's no but in that sentence. Once God said, that's the end of the sentence, period. For all eternity, period, on the end of that sentence. But then we started to deal with, as we got through September, we got into the real crux of the matter. How do you possess the blessing of Abraham in your life? Because if it was just about us desiring to be blessed, there wouldn't be a human being on this planet that wasn't already walking in the blessing because everybody desires to be blessed. I mean, if you lined up a thousand people, maybe maybe one of them, 999 would say, I'd rather live a blessed life than an unblessed life. So it obviously cannot be all hinging upon what do I desire? Or now that I know about it, I'd like it. It's like, you know, it's like Olivia. She was happy with her, with her baby food until we gave her ice cream. That's now the game. That changed the game at that point. Then you got sprinkles on your ice, and that changed the game again. Because now you know. But so if we would just know about the blessing, and now that we know it's available to us, then we should just get it. The problem is, evidentially, It doesn't work like that. So what we've had to do then is go back and find out what is the trigger? What is the doorway that unlocks the blessing of Abraham? Or that we would say, if what do I have to believe in order to uh, 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 unleash this force in my life? Because the blessing of Abraham is not supposed to be something we try to get. It's not something that you can claw at or do enough to, uh, to get. The, 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 uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6 tells us that these things shall be added unto you. And so we're all sitting around right now waiting for it to be added to us. How many of you got a little bit more vision than you do have money right now to fulfill that vision, right? Well, that's everybody. The kingdom is supposed to be the other way around. The Lord said this to me actually a couple of years ago. I'll share it with you. I was up at the Toronto Vineyard Church. Uh, which is now called the Catch the Fire, thank you. And uh, Bishop Tommy Reed was speaking at that conference. So he asked me to come up with him. And, and so I spent a couple of days up there with him. And at that time, the Lord began to talk to me about this thing about the money and vision. And he said to me, he said, you've spent your life always having more vision than you have money to fulfill that vision. He said, but you're coming into a time when you will have more money than you will have vision. But can I tell you something, and since, which of course was a hallelujah moment, 
But then I started to think about that dynamics in the way the kingdom is supposed to operate, right? I'm supposed to be more concerned about your, the vision on your life than I am concerned about the vision on mine. How many of you know that? The reason that you see so many people now in the kingdom, they're all dedicated to fulfilling their own vision, which they have to be because God gave you that vision. You need to get focused on getting that vision to pass. But how many of you can smell somewhere in there that it sounds a little bit on the selfish side? Right? That you, you, I am, so then Ian, in, when it comes to Light City Church, Ian is very dedicated to fulfilling the vision that God gave him, which is Light City Church, or us, actually. That sounds a little on the selfish side, right? And it can have a selfish component to it until you have more money than you have vision. Now, what do you do? You're looking around to find who's got a vision that needs the resources in order to bring it to pass, right? Because you just don't sit there, you know, counting your gold, not much, there's not much, maybe that works for a minute and a half, but then you get a little bored. So you're looking for something, a vision, a purpose, a kingdom-mindedness that you want to begin to sow into. That's how, it works. That's how the kingdom is supposed to work. And so when we are in this place of accessing now this automazio flow of the, the blessing of Abraham into our lives, we have to understand what is the door, doorway. And particularly when it comes to our own lives, we're saying, what is the doorway that I don't even know is a doorway? What is the door that's locked so shut that I don't even know it's a door? Because it would appear that in North America, we prosper because we work really hard. We take a lot of risk. We do a lot of things, which is wonderful. That's the way our culture is built. Everybody works hard and then everybody benefits by everybody working hard because that makes our economy keep rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. But that's not the kingdom. That's not the way the kingdom was designed. Yes, you work, but you don't work to make something happen. You work now that something is already happening, right? You have a garden and it is blossoming and it is producing fruit all over the place. What do you do now? You need to go to work to bring in the harvest. I don't have to go to work in order to make a harvest happen. That's natural speaking. But our economy, as wonderful as it is, is built upon the go to work principle. And once you go to work, then eventually, if you do everything in our world getting more and more complicated, if you do everything right, you may end up with a couple of dollars in your pocket when you retire after a long, hard life and then die a couple of years later because of all the stress and struggle and strain of the toil that you went through. How many of you say, yeah, that, I, I think there's a, some of that sounds okay, but the dying in a couple of years, that doesn't sound real hot. Doesn't sound like that's all God. And so what we have to begin to discover, sorry again for this long preamble, what we have to discover is that there is an entirely new system, completely different than the one that we have become familiar with where I have to struggle and strain, I have to work 100 hours a week in order to survive that week. And I have nothing left over at the end of the week, except now as we found out, my 10% that I can now tithe. But I end up then back to zero again, back to zero again, back to, and then I start Monday morning struggling in order to get to, to, to Sunday again the following week. It's not supposed to be like that. No. That's not the design of God. And so then, for each of us humbly coming before God and saying, okay, where, what is this door that has been painted shut for so long, I can't even see the seams of the door anymore. 
Do I have you? So watch here now. Did you go to Ephesians chapter 5? In Ephesians chapter 5, yes, by the way. The, in Ephesians chapter 5, now, most of the time that we, are, that we have used this scripture, it's really more when we are marrying two people. And so it's giving us the idea of the relationship between a husband and a wife. But if you read carefully, as we did, I think, the last time that I was here, or maybe the time before that, we're taking a look at this scripture, and Paul isn't actually talking about a marriage class here. He's using marriage as the metaphor, something that is common to you and I, that we can then use that common understanding to get an understanding of something that is not common. That's what you use a metaphor for. And Jesus used these all the time. He would say the kingdom of God is likened unto A. And he says seed, or he says this or that. Because so, I understand what a seed is. You understand what a seed is. And we begin to see then, how does this other thing work, which we maybe couldn't see how it worked. We now have a glimpse into how it works because we have this common metaphor that is being used by God to explain something to us. And that's what we have in Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians chapter 5 is actually talking about my relationship, the relationship of the church, which isn't a building, it's not a denomination, it is a, per, it is a person or a group of people, is referred to as the church. And Jesus's or our relationship to God in this relationship, Ephesians is telling us, is likened unto a relationship between a husband and a wife. And now I can learn what is my relationship like to Jesus because I am in fact the bride or preparing to be a bride. And I can begin to understand the dynamics because I am married to somebody or in, you may not be, but you know people who are married to each other and you can see for good or for bad, how stuff works good, how stuff works bad. I can certainly see that in my life with, with Tina, this is my wife, uh, we, and our life together has gone, you know, it's, it's had some glorious moments, but it's also had some of the other ones. And I'm gonna look at, I can look at those and think, okay, this is how this has gone and why? How should it have gone? What, what is the relationship? How is it life-giving? How is it not life-giving? What are the mistakes that I've made? What are the things I've learned? And I can look through all of that in our relationship together and not only in our relationship, but I have the blessing of being able to see all a plethora of relationships all over the place, good, bad, and indifferent, where I can sort of see this is life-giving, that's not. This is life-giving, that's not. And that's what we are encouraged to do here now when we are learning our relationship, our true relationship with God. Now we have to remember, even in our culture, we have these things called marriages, but a lot of marriages aren't marriages. They're agreements. I'm gonna split the rent, we'll have some kids together. If I ever don't like you, we have this agreement, that's how we're gonna dissolve everything after it's all said and done. You know, for better or for worse most of the time, till death do us part most of the time, and all of these kind of things where we're not really necessarily understanding. So we have to build in a little bit of a bias there, and I'm not criticizing anybody because of it. The problem has been we haven't understood the dynamics, and then things break like crazy if you don't understand them. 
If you have a car and somebody told you that you didn't have, nobody ever told you you had to change the oil in that car, run real great for the honeymoon. It might even go a year or two after that. But how many of you can say, yeah, you got trouble coming because you didn't know that you had to change the oil in that thing? How many of you know that's, that's a lot of the reason that we have these statistical problems with marriages in our culture. Not because the people are bad, they're not. They just don't understand how this stuff works. How does it become life-giving? And, and then, then, by extension, what Paul is referring to, because believe me, we, didn't have, we don't have a lock on, on not understanding marriages. They had these problems forever. Paul says, if you want to understand your relationship to God, and maybe you would say, not life-giving, particularly in the place that I understood I was supposed to be being super abundantly blessed going in and blessed going out then I'm thinking maybe my marriage with God is on the rocks. Maybe it's not working the way it's not. And I don't know why it's not. And that's what we're at right here to say, let's look at what is the relationship in fact? Because if your marriage is a business relationship, don't expect it to work like somebody who's got a real marriage. Do you understand? Now that may be okay. All you wanted was a business relationship like we did in the days of old. You know, you had arranged marriages and these type of things and it was a business thing. And so it worked according to those terms, but nobody expected it to be life-giving. It wasn't supposed to be life-giving. It was a business relationship. It was supposed to produce a profit or do something like that. Does that make some sense? So now when we have a relationship with God, we want it to be life-giving. That's why we're here. We don't come to this place because we just, you know, I mean, we love everybody that's here, but we're here serving God because we want this life-giving promise that comes from the scripture. We get married because of this promise that it's going to be, you know, happily ever after. In order for it to be those things, everybody in here that is married knows in order for your marriage to be happily ever after, you need to know some stuff, don't you? That's the same place that Paul is referring to here. You need to know some stuff. Let's just read it. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. This is verse 21. And so I started in verse 21 because most people don't start their marriage discussion in verse 21. They started in verse 22, particularly if a man is reading it. 22 starts, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> now, I want to draw your attention right off the hop. Nothing in the way God says or does things is random. Not a sing- He could spend a billion years wondering whether verse 21 should go before verse 22 or after verse 22. He is so intentional about every minuscule detail of everything because he has a trillion years to think about it. If you had a trillion years to think about what you were going to have for dinner tonight, I can promise you it would be exceptional. (laughs) That's how God is. So the fact that verse 21 is before verse 22 is a very important fact. So I want you to now see that with my relationship with Tina. Although I am the man of the house and every now and again, it rarely happens, certainly anymore. I don't think it has ever happened in any serious way in our relationship 
where I had to be the hammer that came down and made a decision because it had to be made and I have to ignore what everybody else is saying and just make the decision. That has almost never happened. We work it out. It's much more life-giving in a relationship if we can be, in it, be prepared in advance, thoughtful, all of these good things, and work it out before the deadline so that we can come up with a solution that works for both of us. How many of you can already tell that works better? Now, there may be a moment when it doesn't work like that. And some situation has come and blindsided us. The decision has to be made today. I have to make that decision. Sorry, everybody. Wham, I make the decision. But you know what? I can create a lot of animosity because I did that. Because everybody's wondering, you know, did he even care? You know, he didn't think about what I wanted. There was no consideration for me. There was no, there's, do you see that? Can I tell you something? This is exceptional understanding from God, what he's trying to show us here, not because I figured it out. <laughs> God's talking about his relationship with Ian. Ready? This is going to shock your God principle right here. He says, in a good covenant relationship, submit yourselves one to another. Is anybody getting what I'm saying? In your relationship with God, he's not going to push you around. Unless you're about to do something that is radically going to forever and ever and ever prevent you from ever getting anywhere near your destiny. Something like jumping off a bridge. Doing something radically, excuse my word, stupid. Now God will come in and, and do something to, to get you on back on track. Most of the time, what God wants to do is he wants to be in a submit yourselves one to another relationship with you. He doesn't want a God worm relationship with you. He wants a partnership. You understand? So a lot of times when we have this bad understanding right off the hop of our relationship, I'm servant, he's master kind of a thing, where Jesus said, I do nothing except that, I see my father doing it. That's because God has that thunderbolt waiting for Jesus. Go on, step over, step over it. Go on, I'm waiting for you. Well, we don't see that as the relationship between Jesus and the father, who is our example. You see this relationship of the symbiotic relationship between Jesus and the Father, where you see me, you see the Father. I do nothing except I first see the Father do it. I'm not in bondage to do it. We are submitted one to another. We work in this relationship together in order to produce this heaven on earth expression, not because I am some you know, android who is just doing what God is telling me to do robotically going through all the paces of my life. But instead of that, I am living in this life-giving flow, submitted one to another, just like I have with, with my natural spouse. And we need to be those people that say, wait a minute, am I purifying my relationship? Am I getting a little bit of an understanding of what God's trying to talk to me about here? He wants to be in partnership with me. There were other ways for God to phrase this. If he wanted me to be slave and him master, he could have said, you're, sl you're slave, I'm master. And there wouldn't be any other understanding of our relationship than that. Many of the other religions of the world, they have you know, master-slave. That's the end of the relationship. 
Instead, God said, nah, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not life-giving to a human being to be in that status with God. And so, what we have to do then as we are looking for this understanding of marriage and what did Ian and Tina go through in order to get to the place where we got married? I made, I made the joke last time, you know, Tina met me, my shocking good looks. She met me at noon, had me at the altar at one o'clock and we were honeymooning by two. <laughs> Can I tell you, it did not go like that, right? We had a lot of, she would, of course, if you'd known me at the time, she had a lot of boxes that needed to be checked off. I struggled to check off some of those boxes because there was approving, mm-hmm. right? There was a season, there was a, 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 a process, there was prerequisites in order for Tina to make the decision that she made in order to marry me. Can I tell you, your relationship with the father is very much like that. And we don't like this concept, I, I understand that. We don't like the concept that you prove for something. I get tested. But can I tell you something, when it comes to a covenant, It's not that God does not want to be in covenant with you. He does. He, from the foundations of the world, he already had this plan. The problem is our level of maturity has to come up so that I'm not tripping over my feet every time. Let me show you an example. Tina could be an awesome covenant person doing everything 100% right. But if I'm a jerk, how's that going to work for me? Even though she's doing all the right things because she's a covenant person, I am like, you know, making so many mistakes, no matter how hard she tries to make my life better, I can't possibly get a better life because I'm making all that. Do you see that? And if I am going to be a liar and a cheat and a betrayer and and abusive and all of these kind of things, no matter how hard she tries to create a great relationship, I am breaking it every time I have a, have a shot. I mean, you could, that's pretty easy to see that, right? Yes. That's exactly the same relationship that we have with God. Right. God is desperate in order to get our covenant with him working. Yeah. Desperate for it, so desperate that he pray, paid a price that none of us can imagine. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I have some days when I do not like Alex but I'd have to really consider if I would put him on a cross to save somebody else. Wouldn't that, like, that's just, it's almost like we could, we could, <laughs> we could joke, right? But you know that that would never happen. If anything, I would go, right? You at least know that much about me. If I had the choice, I would take the burden upon me, right? But that's the price. That's how badly God wants into this. The problem is, if we don't understand how it works, we are constantly short-circuiting the the formula. So it's not that the formula, God is preventing it from getting to me. Like I showed you last time, remember, with the two warriors coming in to fight joy? Do you remember that example? Because I distrusted, I held back, which caused me to be, to be the problem. Alex was bar- barreling in and doing what he was gonna do, maybe died with full glory and honor because Joy's a meditator. I'm the one who was left out. I was the one who betrayed. I was the one who hesitated. I was the one, right? 
And then because of that, I got all the negative on me. Do you see that? Rather than it being the other person. That's kind of the kingdom revelation here. But well, so what I need you to understand is, is that I can look at how my relationship works with Tina and I can determine from that, how's my relationship with God? Because covenant is a relationship. It is not an agreement. And so let's just, I'm just gonna give you these because I didn't get to them last week. Um, our, so the number one is in my relationship with Tina is am I attracted to her or is she attracted to me? I was a guy, so we're kind of attracted to everybody. But the, when, when, yeah, she's breathing, so I'm attracted, right? Was she attracted to me at that time, right? Can I tell you something? This is not universal. So when you take a look at the God, Jesus, because you see Jesus, you see the Father, right? So when I am in, and I'm looking at Jesus, do I actually like Jesus? See, everybody's God, you know, Allah or Buddha or all of the other ones, they're all super powerful. They're all commanding the lightning bolts of heaven. They're all powerful and rich and mighty and warriors. Yeah, they're all that. But that's not the only side. As a matter of fact, it's almost not, unless you really provoke God to do something, like at the end of the day, somebody comes and tries to hurt you. Okay, now you have God provoked. But for the most part, God's not very easy to provoke. God is meek. Because Jesus was meek. He's kind. He's thoughtful. He's peaceful. He's loving. He's tender. Not everybody likes that. Consider when Jesus was here. He had folk that loved him and folk that didn't. People want, didn't want God to be a man. They didn't want him to be thoughtful. Didn't want him to care for lepers or Samaritans. Didn't want him to be inclusive. Didn't want him to be caring. They want him to be, I need a God that can beat the crap out of the Italian, I mean, the Romans. That's what I really need. I need a God that's powerful. I can take over the world and subdue. And uh, God's not like that. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It is in where? It's in the heart of a man. You take over the world, yes, but you don't do so with force. You do it. See, some people don't like that. And so when we are looking at God, am I actually attracted to him, but to his very nature? Number two, do I like him? You know, we have, this, we have these things that, how many of you have heard of love languages? Can I tell you that the book is not well named? Because these languages are not love languages, they are like languages. If you want somebody to like you, these are the things that you should do. You should say nice things about them, words of affirmation. You should do nice things for them, acts of service. You should buy them gifts. You should be in physical proximity to them. It's okay for me to touch Sandy, but not for me to touch Julia, because it's not good for a man to touch a woman, right? You all know that. But physical touch is appropriate. I can give a quick hug, right? And then when you get married, there's things you can do that have really upped the game in that area when it comes to physical touch, and that empowers you to 
become in relationship with, with each other, and you can spend quality time together. The more quality time you spend together, the more you develop a relationship and you begin to like each other. Do you see all that? Can I ask you a question? Do, is there evidence that you like God? Do you like to spend time with God? Quality time, not business time. God, I need this, hurry, 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 and out the door. Time with him, quality time, sitting on, on the beach and staring into Tina's eyes with absolutely nothing to do but gaze into her beauty. Do I like to do that with God? I like to do that with her. That's evidence that if you would say, uh, if, if uh, uh, help me, Jesus, if you were doing marriage counseling and in the marriage counseling class, you asked the couple to give me 10 examples of where they spent quality time together over the last week. 10 examples where they bought something for the other person. 10 examples of where they said nice things about that person. 10 examples of where they physically touched each other. And 10 examples of whatever the third one, fifth one was. And if you can't give me 10 examples, then I would suggest to you that you don't like each other. And you could start there. Start working on doing those things. You'll come back two weeks later and you will say, I just love my spouse. <laughs> what you actually did is you developed in your like for them. Because that's how like works. Like actually works a certain way. If you don't do those things, you don't like the person. If they do those things, then you do like them. It's quite simple. The question is not, although you can use this as a marriage class, and I'm sure some of you will, hopefully, but that's not the point. The point is, I can look at that and say, do I like God? Do I like spending time with him? Do I buy him things? Do I serve him? Do I say nice things about him? Help me with what the fifth one is. Somebody help me with what the fifth one is. And physical touch. So I guess, do I really enjoy worship? Close worship. Hands up, tears coming down my face laying on the floor, because that's as close as we can get to him. Not that you have to be here to do that, but you know, when you're intimate time of worship before God, that's, do I enjoy that? Do I enjoy the tenderness? Do I enjoy the intimacy? Do I enjoy the proximity? If we don't, then we look at it and say, I, I don't know that I like him enough to really get into a covenant with him. And then finally, we're gonna go to the, the third one, do I love him? Can I tell you, that's why this love languages is not well suited for what that actually is, which is okay. I'm, I'm okay that the world mostly thinks like is love because of what love is. And you can measure, and we do it you know, in our marriage classes and things like that, I can measure the love that you have for somebody else. And it's quite simple. Are you willing to sacrifice for the other person? Love is not sacrificed just by itself. Love is the compelling to sacrifice. And probably because marriages are not, you know, maybe where they should be in our world today, but where I find this the most beautiful is when I watch a mother's relationship to her child. And we have a bunch of them now. I don't know how many we got now. They're just, they're breeding No, I know how many I have, three. <laughs> I can watch in Jessica and Danielle as they relate to their children 
their babies, there's nothing that they would not do for them. It, it's not like, oh boy, do I think I should wake up today and feed my kid? Uh, I don't really feel like it. Maybe they'll be fine by themselves. We'll do it tomorrow. They're not. They're compelled to do it. They're compelled to love that child. Not because they're saying, oh, I guess I'm, I'm sure hoping they're going to be happy about all this sacrifice that I'm doing for them. They don't even, that doesn't even cross their minds. Do you see that? That's what love is. And so when we look at our relationship with God, would I die for him? If it comes down to me or him, would I die for him? Would I give my life for him? Is he more important to me than I am to me? Is the best way to really say that. Because in like my relationship, you see this often, right? Maybe in the olden days, not so much anymore, but in the olden days where the husband would jump in front of a bullet rather than the wife get killed because he said, she's more important than I am, and so I will allow my life to be sacrificed in order for her to live. That's what love looks like. I just said, they are more important to me than I am to me. That's love. So let's look at it when it's related to God. Is there evidence in my life that says, I think God is more important than me. Anywhere in my life that I can use my life to serve his life, I am not just willing to do it, I am compelled to do it. I don't even think about, I'm almost in, the, in, the, in motion before I've even thought about whether I'm willing to do this or not. Because God just said, I'd like this to happen. And I'm already in motion. You see, that's the nature of somebody now. I'm, I'm not trying to be condemning. And I'm, 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 what we're doing is we're just allowing God to teach us. Just like in my relationship with Tina, the more I am willing to sacrifice for her, even if I don't do it necessarily, but I'm willing to do it. If it ever were to come to be the need for us to one of us not to eat one day because we didn't have enough money to eat, I would certainly prefer that Tina would eat. I hope that never comes the day, but I would do it, let's say, if I was a decent person. That quality on the inside of me is what is producing my ability to get, make our relationship life-giving. Do you see that? That's why we said in the beginning, I can't just do covenant things. I have to become a covenant person. Becoming a covenant person is when I finally begin to tap into this third level where I am willing to, to sacrifice my life for not sort of like a, you know, like a martyr would do. I just give my life for a cause, however that might be, because I'm really looking for the glory of the martyrdom, not really the care for the cause. But when I care about somebody else's life, and I desire them to prosper so much that I am willing to sacrifice myself in order to bring that to pass. I'm starting to understand how God feels. Now remember, going back to this, when I am looking for 100% of my relationship in covenant, my ability to be 100% in determines how the, per or the percentage that I can be in 
determines the percentage I get out. God is already 100%. It doesn't ever change. It's like if Tina was a perfectly covenanted person, she would be perfectly expressing her love for me, but my ability to receive that love is being governed by how well I enter into my side of the covenant. Do you see that? That's how we are with God. So our ability then, when we take a look at these things, we are interacting with God, hanging about him to see how I can move myself down this equation to the place where I can be, I can be in, but in the covenant in such a way that I have now, I possess, that's a bad way of saying it, but I have become the person who can actually function well inside of an environment like covenant. Does that make some sense? It'll, uh, hopefully this will make sense more as we continue down the road. The next thing that we got to talk to then, what's today's lesson about as I'm finished with my time? Today, the lesson of the covenant is that a covenant is 100% for 100%. Anything less than 100% for 100% is an agreement. It's like that last time we talked, Mike and I would, would, would barter as to how much I'll be willing to, I would be willing to pay in cash for the candy bar that he has. And we're just negotiating back and forth to see what number we land on so that we have a mutually beneficial arrangement between the two of us. That's how we are mostly familiar with everything in life. And because of that, we don't understand the 100% for 100% thing. Anything, 99 for 99 is not covenant. It doesn't, it's like, it's like the switch. It's either on or it's off. And when we are trying to get into the covenant, when we're relating to the covenant, our normal North American way of thinking is that I am willing to pay a certain amount for the thing that I need. And this is where we get into probably what we will have. Now, as North Amer most of us being North Americans, most of us will have problems with the concept of covenant right here with what I'm about to explain to you. And I refer to it as the desperation paradox. The desperation paradox says this. I am, all, I am willing to pay for something that I need to the degree to which I determine the value of that thing that I need, okay? So if we are, let's say, um, I probably need water the most, let's say, except oxygen. So let's say that there was a drought and there was no water to be had. Everybody now is moving towards a desperation to get the gallon of water that I have up here on the pulpit. Right now, the water's flowing and there's water for everybody. There's no problem at all. The value of this jug is very low. It's a buck. As the shortage or the desperateness of our need for that water individually goes up because there's a drought or whatever, the value of that liter of water would go skyrocketing. Does that make sense? 
and you would, we would be auctioning and it would go from a dollar to maybe, it would literally, because we all need water to survive, it would be given to the person in the room who has the most money. Because they would, because in the end of the day, there's gonna be one person who survives and that person will be the person who is willing to pay, able or willing to pay the most for that water. Does that make sense? That's how our soul does everything. When you determine every decision that you make, you're determining it in a way, how much do I need it, which means how much value do I place on it, versus how much does it cost me? Every decision that you make, I think I paid $12 for this shirt. If the guy would have wanted $50 for it, I would not have bought it. I do not care about it that much. And there's somebody down the street who is willing to sell it for $12, so I'm not paying $50 to this guy because I can get it for $12 from the next guy. This is after Black Friday. We all know this is how the whole world around us works. This is the problem now. Our soul is always desperate for options. As long as it has options alternative solutions to the problem. Then it knows I'm never going to become desperate. So I'll never have to pay more for what I need because I have lots of suppliers. Does that make sense? And so our world is beautiful for that because we have lots of supply. You know, we have oranges coming from Florida and there's some coming from Chile. There's some coming from Israel. So if there happens to be a flood in Chile, that don't matter because we'll get lots of oranges from Israel. That's fine. We got lots of options. We like that there are lots of options because it keeps everything very stable and we have access then to everything that we need. Yes. Now, this is, this is now where the problem comes. In order for us to be willing to pay 100% for something, not just 100% of who we are now, I have to pay 100% of who I will eternally be. Isn't that what Tina asked me for when we got married? She says, I'm going to be 100% in, but I'm not marrying you unless you are also 100% in. How many of you said that? So the math, the business of our relationship was in order to get her cost me, another word for 100% is everything. everything. Eternally, everything. That means everybody, everybody, everything I was when I was 24, everything when I was 34, everything when I was 44, everything when I was 54, everything I will always be is always hers. How many of you are saying, she must have been some good looking? Well, better to say he must have been because he don't look much anymore. But that's how much, no, no, listen to me. This is your soul's problem. You want something from God. I don't know what it is. Everybody wants something from God. I want God to protect me. I want him to provide for me. I want him to love me. I want him to give me heaven when I die. We all want something from God. The problem is we have to pay everything to get it. That's crazy, eh? And so what happens our world has become masterful 
at giving us options. One of those options is mammon, the big guy, right? So I don't need God to provide for me. I can do it myself because I got my da 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 So I'm not really desperate for God in that particular area because I got options. It's kind of like the way our world now, people, you know, girls get, mar- get mad because guys don't want to get married anymore. Well, that's because they get so much of the benefits just for, you know, buying you a drink. I mean, I'm not talking to people in here. But, right, the, 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 if, 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 if a person has options, why would he pay everything at the altar for something he can get for, for almost for free? Do you see? And that's where the system has gone. It's, it's, it's gone all haywire. Because the system, when people come into their marriage, they're not coming in 100%. They're coming in at 7%. Because I got somebody for all those other things. I don't need you to be my companion. I got my buddies. I don't need you to cook for me. I got my mom. I don't need you. 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 Do you see that? And so what happens is, I really wasn't, I wasn't desperate When it comes to our relationship with God, we need to become desperate. But, oh yeah, it's so good. Yes, hallelujah, Pastor Ian. But the way that you become desperate is that all your other options fail you. How many still want to become desperate? That means mammon fails you, Humans fail you, the government fails you, your education fails you, your good looks fails you. Everything, at least in your mind, has failed. See, that's the paradox. I need to be desperate, but the very thing I'm desperate not to be is desperate. Your soul, when it is desperate, is in its most undone and vulnerable and weak state. The very place where your soul despises the most of anything. You are completely naked at that moment. How many of you say, that's what I'd like? I'd like to be completely naked. <laughs> Nobody wants to come up here and take off all their clothes. Matter of fact, if I had somebody that wanted to do that, we'd need to take you back and do a bunch of ramas on you. <laughs> I may look good in this clothing, but let me tell you. What gets out of the shower every morning don't look at all like this. And everybody knows that. That's why we hate it. That's why, can I tell you something? We've, we've so messed up. The, 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 the honeymoon night is very nerve-wracking in historically. Because the most that he ever saw of her was like this little spot in the middle. Everything else was covered. You had no idea what was in that package. 
Seriously, that's, what, that's how it was. If you look at the clothing back then, everybody looked like they were made out of a barn. <laughs> so it was, no, no, uh, l- listen. What would it have been like? Imagine some of the cultures where all, all the husband sees of his wife is this little slit right here. How nerve-wracking that would be for her on her wedding night. Is my husband even going to find me attractive? That's pretty nerve-wracking, right? You see, we hate that. And that's the paradox. That's the paradox we find ourselves in. And mostly because of our culture. Because our culture has given us so many options. That's why God says you cannot serve me and serve mammon. You cannot have uh, somewhat dependence on God, but then the rest of it I'll depend on mammon for. I need God to give me goosebumps on Sunday morning, but the rest of it, I got the medical system, I got my 401k, I've got my banker, I've got my, you know, my whatever you call those things, concubine to take care of all of these, those, those, I don't need God for any of that stuff. I got all this. But what we, what we give up because of that is that when it comes to our covenant, God asks us to do something. No, no, I'm not, I'm not looking to obey there because I got that. I don't need to do this because I got that. I got all this stuff. I got, I got a backup plan. So if God gets mad at me, that's okay. Because I don't need that from God. If I lose that part, what's it to me? I'm covered. Do you see the problem? What, we're do- what we don't realize is that we are trading shadows and dust for eternal, eternally awesome things. It's like we're trading our black and white TV or we're keeping our black and white TV and God is offering us 4K Technicolor. We're just saying, no, no, I'm just gonna stay down here because I'm gonna, here's what the difference is. And I'm gonna close with, whoa, I'm gonna close with this. How many of you could tell I'm super excited about this covenant thing right now? That's why God, you know, when you take a, go back to um, a whole bunch of times when God says, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Right. And then the rich young ruler says to him, well, you know, I, 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 I've done all the good, I've obeyed all the rules. Yeah. What did Jesus say to him? He says, go give away everything you, everything, all, all, all. Now that wasn't, that doesn't mean God wants you to give away all that you have but you need to be willing to. Do you see the difference? That's what he was saying. He was saying to the rich young ruler, well, let me see if you're qualified to enter the kingdom. Would you give it all away for me? Because I told you to. That's why this is hard for, we are all rich beyond, beyond. Rich in the sense that we have alternatives. We have options. And so because of that, our soul doesn't find its way properly into a covenant any more than a a man who has got three girlfriends willing to do the cooking and the cleaning and the extra stuff. Now he wants to get married to his wife. Well, he don't need to get along with his wife. He don't need to be nice to his wife. Why not? I got people for that. You see the, can you see by looking at the natural relationships how this stuff does, why would we have expected that it was working? Of course it's not going to work. And I'll flip to the end. We desperately, and this is, this is, I'll just draw this for you and then at least I've done something productive today. 
<laughs> so when we are dealing with, because uh, we can't say that money's bad. It's not bad. But the problem is, is that we think, and I watch the important nuance here, we think if I get, if I work on my good looks, then our good looks is going to get us this, well, no, let's say you're turned 40 here, so if you're a guy, it kind of goes like that. <laughs> and then, then let's say that we have, oh, so we're gonna, we think our good looks are going to make it when we're young, right? You think, oh my gosh, I look so much like a GQ guy that I'm going to be on top of the world, and then you realize nobody cares. And so what do you do? You go get an education. And so your education goes and lifts you up a little bit more than that. And you're kind of working away, developing skill and competency. you got some credentials and some sheepskin and all of these good things, a bunch of debt. And you've got all of that that goes along there, thinking that it's going to be the answer to the eternal question of my life is now meaningful because I have this education. And we've got, then we, get, then we get an education and we find out now, where's the agreement? Now I've got the mammon, right? So I start to think, now I got money, cash. And so cash is now king and it's going and it's making all this great way for me. And so all of these things, I'm capped out, whatever they would be, on and on and on and on, all of the idols, all of the things that I can, that I really need, but I can get them on my own. I'm capped right here. Because that's as far as money can get you. Your education plus your good looks plus your whatever, it's capping you out right here. For most North Americans, right here, that's all I need. It's just about me. So if I can take care of myself, if I can live a good retirement, if I can have a house on the beach, if I can have a cute wife, if I can whatever, that's what the vision is. And so those things are fine. Until you meet God. And God says, you know that desire of yours to be you know, a house on the beach and a cute wife? That is like down here. What, you're, what you were designed to be is way the heck up here. Your life was supposed to change the world. Your life is supposed to be radically meaningful and contributory and, and explosive in the very history of humankind. Nobody was designed by God that is inconsequential. Every destiny is radically important. But you can't get there with all these things. Until we realize that, we have not become desperate. Desperate is based on the vision. If I don't want to have children, I'm not desperate for a wife. Especially in our culture. You can get all the, all different ways. If I want legitimate children, I need a wife. Right? And so I can play the games down here. I'm sorry for being a little graphic. I can play the games down here, but I can never get real, my own children. Do you see that? I need a wife for that. How, I'm now desperate. Do you see what happens? When we understand, this is why the, 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 the kingdom mechanism that we have used for thousands of years now, you know, the only thing I'm really desperate for is heaven. And I know there's one guy with the key to heaven, right? God controls heaven. 
So now I am desperate for God because I know he has the only thing I really need and that is eternity. Because my life sucks anyways and it's all miserable down here. It's just live long enough to get to heaven. We're starting to understand in our culture that life is about more than suffering and then heaven. We're starting to realize that God has a purpose and destiny, a design for your life here. In order for your life to be successfully lived here, you cannot live it as a onesie. You cannot do it by yourself. The only way you can do it is the partnership, the synergy, the covenant relationship that God is offering you that makes you a we. God within, when I can get this, if I can really say I'm giving myself 100%, as I'm giving 100%, I'm receiving 100%. This 100 plus 100 is what is going to give me the ability to reach the destiny that God has given me. I can tell. You don't have to just amen that. That's such a good thought, Pastor Ian. I can tell when you cross over that line. I can tell when you realize you're desperate. When the vision has become real to you, I'll tell. Because you will become desperate for God. When you become desperate for God, I'm willing to pay everything. Up until that point, I want to negotiate. I'm willing to pay what's heaven worth. Well, here's the deal. God, you tell me the day before I'm going to get hit by the bus. Up until then, there's a lot of fun that I want to have down here. I'm negotiating. You see that? What we need is we need to be desperate to become desperate. We need to crave the very place our soul hates the most. That's why in this present moment, as the kingdom separates from modern churchianity, these people, the kingdom people, the people who are willing to step into this place of covenant which is going to be the people through which God can do the blessing of Abraham things. It is those people who recognize they have decided my vision, the vision for my life isn't I want to be plugged back into the matrix, which is here. I just want to be successful and live my life as a rock star. I want this. If this is what I was designed for, That's what I want. That's my vision now. That's my high watermark. And I'm willing to pay everything to get there. Put your hand over your heart. Now I'm being cautious as you just just leave your hand on your heart there for a moment. I'm being very cautious with these prayers that we pray together. 
as we go through this. Covenant cannot be coerced. It cannot be pressurized. It really can't even be given to you because of a reward, I promise you, because of it. That's not covenant. I don't tithe because of a reward that I get. I tithe because I know how good God has been to me. You see that? If I do it for the reward, it's, it, it, it kind of got a little smell to it at that point. So when we pray, as we go through this season of really understanding or being given a real adult choice is really the best way that I can describe it, how I feel it on the inside. We're all being given a choice. As God brings us through these understandings and this is what it is to God and how it works, you're all being given a choice. If all I really want is this, that's okay with God. But you just don't get through to this next level. Because it, and it, which will be okay with you because you don't want that. Because this is part here I don't even really want. This is the part where you give yourself away and let your life be used by God like Jesus did. Maybe you don't want that yet. That's fine. That's up to God to create that on the inside of us. It's like when I, fall, when I fell in love with Tina, I fell in love with her. I didn't say, oh, I think today I'm going to fall in love with her. I didn't do that. I just noticed that I wanted to be the person that served Tina's vision the most. I so loved her, believed in her, and cared for her. I wanted to be the person closest to her to serve that vision. You see that? I didn't try to do that. It just happened. But when we are, when it has happened to us, like it has for most of us in this room, you are countercultural in who you are as a person. You are ridiculed and persecuted. You are vilified by your culture, but you are still here. You are here because it would appear you love God because the blessing hasn't really always been flowing. It hasn't always worked well, but you are still here. That's how you tell if someone loves someone else. They're not just there for the good times. They're there no matter what. So as we are thinking about these things, it's not that I want you to be condemned that you don't qualify for these things. I want you to realize you do qualify for them. If all I've got to do is grab onto a vision that I have, I got that. I didn't realize that my pulling at the chain needed to be dealt with. If I needed to keep this, that, and the other because of my woundedness, I need to get rid of my woundedness so that I don't pull on the chain like that. I just want to go with God. I don't want there to be all of these things. I want to get them out of the way so that I can go better for God. And I think you're all the same way. So as you are listening to these things, listen to them because I want to hear where my heart is. And if your heart is saying, yeah, that's me, that's what you're looking for. So that when we come to the prayer at the end of each of these sessions, it's like, I'm solidifying this. I'm trial closing this. I'm saying, yes, I have all of these things. Yes, I desire my destiny. Yes, I'm desperate for God. Yes, I know I can't get there by myself. 
And so I'm in. I'm ready to become desperate for God. Put your hand over your heart and say, Jesus, I know you went to the cross because you were desperate for me. And I'm declaring to you today that I am desperate for you. There's nothing in the way. I have no other answers. I have no other solutions. I know the only way for me to be who you designed me to be was for me to step in 100% to my covenant with Almighty God. Heavenly Father, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, I'm in. In Jesus' name.